Well, this morning and next week, we are going to be uh, discussing a topic that is uh, very close to my heart and something that I have wrestled with repeatedly over the years. And I thought it would be an appropriate time in the midst of um, just the craziness of the world and everything that's going on to address this topic at some length, uh, only two weeks. We could go much, much longer, uh, but we'll spend two weeks talking about this. And the, the crazy thing, I think, is that even before the arrival of COVID-19 onto the scene, the statistics regarding anxiety and depression in our culture were alarming. Um, among young people in particular, uh, which seems odd that anxiety would be increasing among young people, but among young people in particular, it's estimated that one in three teenagers will experience an anxiety-related disorder this year. It's very prevalent. Over the past four or five years, uh, college mental health counselors have seen an overwhelming number of students who just can't deal with life and are struggling with these types of issues of anxiety and worry and stress. Um, the suicide rate is increasing at an alarming speed, especially among young people and particularly among young girls. Now, all of those statistics that I just gave you are related to young people um, because that happens to be what I've, I've read about um, recently, but it's not limited. This increase in stress and anxiety and worry is not limited to young people, and it seems to be expanding across our entire population uh, at a very, very rapid speed. And all of this was true before we had a global pandemic on top of all of the other concerns of life. And now we have all these extra issues to worry about, right? We, we think about them every day. Who would have thought two or three months ago that we would be worried about um, an economic recession and health struggles to this level? Those two concerns have been added on top of all of the other uh, stressors of life that we're experiencing. And there's no doubt that many of you and many people in our world are facing feelings of anxiety and worry during this very unusual cultural moment. I have no doubt that some of you are weighed down uh, in, in extra measure by anxiety and by worry during this time. And so the good news, despite that this morning, is that we are not left on our own to address these types of things. We don't have to try to stumble in the dark and figure out what to do with anxiety and worry. The Bible gives us very clear instruction on this topic and helps us to learn, and it is a learning process. It's not something that you sort of nail and fix immediately. It's a learning process, as you will see. But the Bible does give us instruction on how to deal with this and how to learn how to deal with these things. Now, most Christians, and I'm sure all of you, are probably right now thinking of verses that address topics of anxiety specifically. There are verses that tell us we don't need to be anxious. And so the temptation, I think, sometimes is that if we can just memorize those verses, commit them to memory, and then recite those verses when we're feeling anxious, that it'll sort of be like a, a, you know, a, a pill that will solve everything, and we won't be anxious or worried anymore. It'll go away immediately. Well, that's not how it works for most of us. 
And the reality is, is that God's word provides a much fuller and a much deeper picture of both the struggle with anxiety and of the ways that we can approach it and that we can deal with it. There are a multitude of strategies in scripture for how to address these particular life struggles. And I want to tell you this morning that the Bible is always enough for us. It's always enough for us in every area of life. Let me remind you of a passage of scripture this morning that speaks to this sufficiency. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, His divine power, the God who has all the power in the universe, resurrection power at his disposal, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All that we need for physical and spiritual life, for growth in Christ-likeness, has been provided and granted to us, given to us as a gift. Where does that come to us? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything we need is found in the knowledge of Christ, which is given to us in the scriptures. The Bible is sufficient to teach us how to wrestle with these life issues and these struggles. And so this week and next week, I want to show you that. I want to open that up to you to me as well, and show us that the Bible is sufficient for this struggle with anxiety. And then I want to help you with some specific strategies for how to face this difficulty when you encounter it. So uh, you could see on the screen, I think, yeah, it's back up there on the screen there. You can see that the subtitle of this very short series is Diagnosis and Defense. And so this week, we want to take that first word. We want to diagnose anxiety. And then next week, I want to give you several strategies uh, to how to defend against anxiety, how to fight against it, and how to battle against it uh, and overcome it in some ways uh, as you wrestle with it. Now, it's very easy, I think, to want to jump into this. And it's very tempting for me to deal with this topic by offering five, five ways to be less anxious or five strategies, right? And to sort of give you a list right off the bat and to go right to the defense because that's what we want is we want to know how to deal with this and we want to have weapons in our arsenal for how to fight off anxiety. And we'll get to those things. But the reality is, is that most of us don't understand anxiety very well at all. We sort of know it when we feel it, and we know we're experiencing anxiety or worry, but we don't fully understand or even partially understand where this comes from and why we have it. We experience it, we don't want it, and so we want to get rid of it. And so it's easy to jump to the strategies to get rid of it. But before those strategies can really be effective in our lives, we need to begin to diagnose this and understand exactly what is happening, and then we can apply the remedy the defense next week. And so in order to do that, in order to diagnose anxiety, I want to sort of zoom out to a very, very big biblical doctrine this morning. And I want to talk about a specific biblical doctrine. And then once we zoom out and talk about what the Bible teaches about that doctrine, I want to zoom in and think specifically about the way that doctrine impacts our anxiety and worry. So 
Think about this as learning the big picture of how an engine in a car works and then taking that overview and zooming in and working on your own car, your own specific example of that car, of that engine and how it works, all right? Now, the the big picture doctrine that we're going to talk about to help us to diagnose anxiety and worry and what's happening there is called original sin. I'm sure that most of you or some of you have heard that uh, theological phrase before, original sin, and we need to think about that teaching, that biblical teaching for a moment this morning. So sometimes it's tempting for us to think of sin only in terms of something that you and I consciously choose to do in the moment. So there's a law that's given in God's word. We know that law and we choose to break that law in a moment. And that certainly is a sin. And, but that tends to be the only way we think about sin manifesting itself. So we tend, we tend to think in terms of sins in the plural, these individual actions, multiple individual actions or thoughts that we do or things that we don't do. But biblically speaking, that is a woefully inadequate way to think about what happened to human beings as a result of the fall. That's a, a, an inadequate way to consider to think about the way you and I have been affected by the stain of sin. We need to think much more biblically and much more deeply about how sin has impacted us and shaped us. And so the doctrine of original sin says that you and I have been bent out of shape, we have been corrupted, we have been twisted and broken since the moment of our conception. All right, Psalm 51 and verse 5. David is praying here, and notice what he says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, does this mean that God created people evil? No. Genesis is quite clear. Genesis 1, God created the natural order, and he created mankind, and pronounced all of it very good. It was excellent. It was pure and free from stain and free from sin. It was morally upright and morally good. The order and structure of it was fitting. Mankind was free from the stain of sin, and Adam and Eve, as they were created, could accurately reflect the image of God. But when Adam and Eve chose to listen to the voice of the serpent, they chose to trust in themselves rather than trusting in God, everything changed in that moment. They'd chosen to sin and they'd chosen to disobey God, and in that moment, their natures were corrupted to the very core of who they were. If you think of Adam and Eve as made in the image of God and as mirrors made to reflect God, the mirror was cracked in that moment. And everything now that they try to reflect and do is twisted. It's not quite clear. It's not quite right. And so now, after that initial sin, their nature had been corrupted, and now it was natural for them to sin. It came quite easily. It sort of bubbled up and flowed out of them from every area of who they were. And you realize this very quickly if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
In chapter 3, once they sin, now it starts to, it's like a waterfall just gushing over the side. And they sin over and over again, and they blame each other. They blame the serpent. Scripture says their eyes were opened. They didn't just commit a sin. Now they were sinners. Their natures had become sinful. It was quite normal now for them to commit sin. Now they produce little sinners who it's quite natural for those little sinners to commit sin. It was like a fish being in water. It's the most normal, natural thing in the world since the fall. I mean, you know how this happens right away in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. One commits murder and kills the other one. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned in Adam. We became sinners. Our natures were corrupted in him because we were present in him. That's the way the Bible teaches this. And so sin passes down through the seed of Adam to his children and his children's children, and it ends up with us. This natural corruption impacts all of us. Now, when I use that phrase, all of us, I'm talking about every individual, but I'm also talking about every part of who you and I are. That's what original sin means. So occasionally, maybe some of you have heard this language of total depravity before to talk about how sin has impacted us. And sometimes people take issue with that language, total depravity. And they say, well, we're not all as bad as we could be. It's not like every single person on earth is Hitler. So many people do nice things, and that's true. But that's not not what total depravity is teaching. Total depravity is teaching not that we're all as bad as we possibly could be, but it's teaching that we're depraved, we're corrupted in every part of who we are. Every aspect of you as a human being has been twisted and bent and corrupted. You don't think as you should. I don't think as I should. I don't desire what I should desire. My emotions have been twisted and bent out of shape. They don't function properly anymore. Jeremiah 17.9, a familiar passage, I'm sure. The heart which is like the control center of your person, of who you are. This is how you think. It's how you feel. It's how you want. The heart, the most basic core piece of you, the control center, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's corrupt. And you and I are born that way. So think about it this way. Why does it seem that some struggles... Some sins are more prevalent to my personality than yours. Why does it seem like sometimes I am hardwired to commit sins in these particular ways? It doesn't excuse them, but they just come more naturally to me, maybe than to you. Why does it seem so normal for me to be moody and grouchy? It seems like the most natural thing in the world. Because sin is hardwired into me. I have been twisted And I have been bent from the moment of my birth. It does seem natural because in many ways it is natural to me because of original sin. So why do I struggle with anxiety? Why does it seem natural 
normal for me to worry and to fear. Because as a son of Adam, as a daughter of Eve, every part of my person has been corrupted by sin. It has been bent out of shape. You and I don't function as we were originally intended to function. Now, this is not to say, and don't hear what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that every time you experience anxiety, it's sin and you have consciously chosen to commit a sin. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. But I am saying, and Scripture says, that your emotions don't work as they're supposed to. They've been twisted and bent out of shape and they don't function properly now. And understanding that is key to diagnosing anxiety and worry and what's happening. So let's talk about emotions for a minute. Anxiety is very clearly an emotion. It's an experience of an emotion. And so we need to talk about our emotions if we're going to diagnose and understand anxiety. Emotions are God's gifts to us. Emotions were created good and still are good. Emotions are intended for you and I to better and more truthfully experience the world around us. We should respond to things emotionally, with emotion. God has designed us that way. You should not ignore and try to press down your emotions. But here's how we need to understand our emotions. Our emotions have been impacted by sin. They've been broken by sin. And so they can be used in a positive or a negative way now. Both ways. So think of it this way. Your anger can be against something that is unjust. You can be angry toward injustice and evil, or you can be angry at your coworker because you didn't get what you want. Is it wrong to be angry? Depends. It depends on the situation. The emotion of anger is not wrong in and of itself. It becomes right or wrong based on the object of my anger, and if my anger is rooted in faith in God, or if it's rooted in trust in self. And so now, if you take that illustration of anger and you carry that over to anxiety, this is going to be helpful in us diagnosing worry and anxiety. Did you know there is a God-designed emotion that is positive that is at the root of my anxiety? It's the positive counterpart to the negative emotion of anxiety and worry. The positive counterpart is vigilance. God designed you and I to be concerned for others, to be vigilant, to be watchful, to see a threat, and to respond to that threat. But when the emotion of vigilance gets twisted out of shape, and when that emotion turns inward on self, then it becomes anxiety, and it becomes worry. Did you know that the word that is used in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, for anxiety, that word is used in both a positive and a negative way? I don't think I knew this till a few years ago, and I don't think most Christians know this, that word is not only used negatively, it's also used in a very positive way. In fact, it's used in the same book in a negative and a positive way. 
There are very familiar passages to us that address anxiety. We know some of these passages. No doubt, if you've ever struggled with this, or you know someone who has, you have quoted Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. Right? A very clear command. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Very clear command not to be anxious, but to trust God. Another familiar one to you, the very beginning of this whole section on anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, it's clear here in these two passages that the emotion of anxiety is something we experience in a negative way, and we're not supposed to experience it this way. It comes from a lack of faith in God. You see that particularly in Matthew chapter 6. But the same Greek word is used in the New Testament in very, very positive ways. All right? Let me show you these. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 and 25. But God has so composed the body, the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the, and here's the word, the same anxiety, the same care, the same concern for one another. Care and concern, vigilance for one another is the same root word and the same idea as the one we find in Philippians 4 in Matthew chapter 6. In Philippians 4, that word is used negatively, but in the same book, in Philippians 2, it's used in a positive way. Paul says this, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. There's, there's our word. So what's the positive counterpart? Right? If anger can be used in a positive way to battle injustice and to fight against sin, or in a negative way to try to gain control, and push others down, then what's the positive counterpart to sinful anxiety and worry? It's, it's vigilant care and concern for others. Let's say it this way. It's an alertness to do good to another person. You see this all the way back in the garden with Adam. What did God command Adam? He was to keep watch over the garden. He was to be vigilant. He was to be careful and concerned about potential threats. And then he was supposed to fight against those threats, to guard the garden from those threats. That's vigilance. One author said it this way. Vigilance is the God-given emotion that urges us to act quickly in response to a threat. Vigilance is the proper constructive concern for the well-being of others and for the advancement of God's kingdom. So in this definition, I want you to notice this. Maybe we can leave it on the screen for a second here um, as I talk this through. That he says that there are, there are two key aims of vigilance. The well-being of others and the advancement of God's kingdom. Both of those are activities that you and I need to be intentional about. We don't just sort of float into care and concern for others. And we don't just sort of ease our way into the advancement of God's kingdom. We have to be intentional and proactive and concerned for those aims. 
So anxiety, sinful anxiety, when our anxiety moves over into the sinful realm, it's a perversion, a twisting of a God-given emotion. And that God-given emotion is concern for the well-being of others and for his kingdom. So here's how the same author defines it. Anxiety is vigilance, that God-given emotion of vigilance that is out of control. You continually scan your environment worried about the what-ifs of life. Anxiety is toxic scanning. Anxiety is also vigilance that is trying to maintain control in a self-protective and self-sufficient way. And then look at this. Anxiety is vigilance minus faith in God. So if that last phrase is right, and I think it is, anxiety is vigilance minus faith in God, then anxiety is vigilance with faith in self. Rather than trusting in God to take care of things and being concerned and turning that care and concern into dependence on him, I turn that care and concern on self. And it's vigilance where I try to handle the situation internally. And I try to go over all the possible outcomes. And I try to walk through all the what ifs. And I try to figure out what will happen in every detail so that I can mentally gain control of the situation. And I can calm myself down. And I can figure it out. Now, if you've ever experienced anxiety, I think this definition resonates with you. I mean, it is constant scanning. It's hyper vigilance. It's hyper awareness. I mean, it feels like your thoughts are running around in a circle in your head and there are knots in your stomach that get tighter and tighter. And there's physical responses to what you're doing mentally and emotionally. And so what happens is there's a perceived threat out there. Right? Something is, at least feels, threatening to you. It may be physical, it may be financial, it may be relational. I mean, we've got a whole host of threats right now, right? You may lose your job during the pandemic. You may get sick. Your loved one may get sick. There are threats out there. It's not wrong. You've actually been designed to be aware of these threats. You're not living correctly if you're not emotionally aware of the threats that are out there. God designed Adam to guard the garden from the intrusion of the serpent. He was supposed to be vigilant. But the question for us is, once I perceive a threat, what do I do with it? How do I respond? There are two paths to responding to a threat. You can respond with faith in God as Matthew 6 encourages us and challenges us to do, or you can respond with faith in self. And I think in my own life, as I've struggled and wrestled with this over the years, that I perceive a threat and I am so used to trusting in self that I don't even notice the movement from perceiving the threat to trusting in self. It's so quick and it's so seamless and it's so natural for me that anxiety comes up instantly. And it's a real fight 
to try to circle back around and perceive the threat and then to begin responding with trust and with faith in God rather than trust and faith in self. Now, let's apply this a little bit to our current situation. I want this pandemic to end and for things to get back to normal as quickly as possible, just like everyone else does. I think we all want that. I don't know that anybody is hoping this thing goes on and on, unless you're a toilet paper manufacturer. My family's convinced that it's all a conspiracy by the toilet paper manufacturers to, to sell their products. But anyway, as we're going through this, and as we want it to get back to normal, let's not ignore the opportunity to learn how to better and more fully trust God through this time. I mean, that's an opportunity that is in front of us. And here's what I mean specifically when it comes to the current situation and the pandemic. You and I are very used to being in control and to taking care of ourselves, or at least perceiving that we're in control and that we manage our own lives and we can take care of ourselves. And this pandemic has challenged the illusion of control and of knowledge for all of us. None of us really knows what to do and the best way to approach this situation, right? I mean, you probably have an opinion on it, and I probably have an opinion on it, and that's fine, but none of us really knows. We don't actually have all the facts at our disposal, and we don't really know what we should do. This virus has defied normal medical knowledge in a lot of ways. The smartest medical minds in the world are working on it to figure it out, and it's stumping them in some ways. What should the government's policy be? I don't know. And most likely you don't either. The situation is a prime opportunity for us to grow in faith. I mean, I think here's what we can do to this. This is what I have been challenged to do, to admit I don't know and to humble myself and to understand that I don't have all the facts at my disposal and to turn to God rather than self. Because that's our tendency. It's to turn to self, to try to control it and to try to manage it and to try to, try to figure it out. And so here's the question that, that we all, I think, need to ask ourselves in the midst of this. Is my first response in this, is my tendency to trust the Lord? Or is it to become anxious and angry because everyone and everything isn't seeing this the way that I see it and things aren't going the way I want them to go? In other words... Do you turn to self or do you turn to God? Do you acknowledge your own personal human limitations and reach out to God in faith? Or do you and I endlessly ask what if questions and try to gain control of the situation in our own minds? A situation like this reveals what's already in my heart. What's already deep down in there is coming out during this time. There's an obvious threat that is happening for all of us. 
It's a number of levels, physical health, economic concerns. And so God has designed us to respond to a threat. That's the most normal human thing to do in the world. But he's designed us to respond with a vigilance that trusts in him. That doesn't turn toward self in anxiety and anger, but turns toward him in faith and in trust. The fall into sin has twisted our response of faith, our faith-filled vigilance into self-centered anxiety and worry, and that often expresses itself in frustration and anger rather than in trust. And so here's what I'm saying. God never wastes circumstances. He doesn't. He's always working. He is not on pause right now because our world is on pause for a few more weeks. He is working, revealing something in my heart and in your heart. And so the challenge for each of us is to let him do his work. Let him do the work of solidifying our trust in him. Of seeing him as so much bigger than we thought before and so much more dependable and worthy of our trust and reliance. Rather than turning in on self and feeling like I've got to figure everything out. I've got to go down all the paths of what if. I've got to be responsible for this. So, hopefully... This morning, this has been helpful for you in diagnosing a little bit anxiety and worry. Hopefully you see this with a little more clarity. Next week, I'm going to discuss some specific strategies for how we change this God-given emotion of vigilance from anxiety and worry into concern and care for others that's rooted in faith in God, because that's the real antidote to anxiety and worry. And I'm looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We desperately need you. We, we, we want you to work in our hearts, Lord. Um, We're so prone to self-centeredness and trust in ourselves. We're so prone to Sinful anxiety and worry. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your control. We doubt your power. Help us, Lord. Help each one of us to use this time where our hearts have been revealed. They've been drawn out and exposed. Help us to utilize this time to do some real soul work through your word. Reveal our brokenness and use your word to heal us to sanctify us, to move us from self-centered anxiety and worry over to faith-filled vigilance and care and concern for others. We thank you for the work that you're doing, even if it's hard work, Lord, and it often is. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes I would prefer for it not to happen. But you are doing good work in our souls, Lord, and I pray that that would continue that we would be built up and you would be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen.